ladies and gentlemen, Ellen Gold. <laughs> wow. Wow. What? Crazy. Crazy. Well, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. So, okay, thank you so much. It's a nice way to start your <coughs> day at work, isn't it? Do yeah. a big round of applause. I don't think I've ever experienced that before, so thank you. This is actually your first time doing uh, something like this. Yes, I've been a part of, uh, uh, you know, panels, and then uh, I go to Comic-Con every year with the True Blood cast, which is similar, but um, the response for me pales in comparison to the response for Alexander Skarsgård. So tonight I sort of feel like I get to feel, you know, like I'm the rock star for an evening. Yeah, but now you've made me think about him, and I'm thinking about turning. Yeah, uh, well. I wasn't going to start with him, but now that we've actually dived in <laughs> at that end, um, I think that uh, True Blood, uh, one of the things that I love so much about that show is just, it, it has to be without a doubt the sexiest show on television. Well, uh, you know, when I first read the books uh, that the show is based on, they, they really are just kind of lady porn. Um, <laughs> romance fiction with vampires and werewolves instead of just normal guys and so I've just tried to be true to that I believe that Ryan Quantum might even be in the audience here tonight I think he is yes but no one will recognize him because he's wearing a shirt exactly <laughs> uh, yes. now there is a lot of nudity in the show is, is that a, a thing that uh, actors feel comfortable doing uh, you know if it serves the plot um, the most of the members of the cast of True Blood do, and since the show really is about primal impulses, and and I, I, I don't know how you can do a show about vampires and have not have sex be a part of it, because for me, vampires kind of are sex. Um, most of the actors, especially the non-Americans, don't have the same hang-ups. So, uh, and uh, over the years, they've gotten even more comfortable. I, I Sometimes I'll... I'll send a script out that says Bill and Sookie make love, and then the dailies come back and I'm watching them. I'm sort of like, whoa, okay, wow, they went there. That's good. <laughs> That's some hardcore love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned the fact that the uh, non-American actors seem to go with it. When you, the thing about True Blood is, of course, most of the people in the show, you have these wonderful Southern accents. Mm -hmm. And yet, when you see uh, behind the scenes of True Blood, mm -hmm. uh, in their natural accents, it's like the United Nations. Absolutely, yes. Like, it, it, does it seem weird that there are so many foreign actors, you know, sort of playing Americans in this in this show? It doesn't to me because I basically, when when I'm casting a show, I basically look for the person who comes in and plays the beats of the scene as written, but also brings it to life in a way that is surprising and, and sort of fresh. And in this case, it just happened that most of the, you know, a, a good percentage of the people who did that happened to be from other countries than America. Uh, can I ask, uh, seeing you mentioned the casting uh, process, when you're writing something of your own, do you have someone in mind that, you know, like an, an ideal of what that character might look like, what they might sound like, or will it, will it change because of the, uh, the actor that plays the role? Both. I think, I don't, I, when I write, I don't tend to have a specific actor in mind, but, I, but the, because the character feels real enough to me, and, and, I, and I feel like if I go like, oh, it's Tom Hanks, then that's sort of limiting in terms of where you're going to go with the character. Uh, but you do have an idea of what they look like physically, how, how they act, and then, of course, whenever you cast someone, they're going to bring something to the role, and it's, it, they're going to inform it as much as the writing does. 
So, yeah, I would say yes to both questions. All right. Well, by the way, if you were going to cast Tom Hanks in True Blood, what sort of character would he play? I think he would play a male stripper <laughs> um, who is also a succubus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll get back to True Blood uh, in a little while, but uh, I want to kind of go back to the beginning. Uh, did you always know that telling stories was something that you wanted to do? Was there a moment in your childhood where you realized this was the career that you were going to pursue? I don't think I, I... I didn't even realize it was a career that one could pursue, but looking back, I, I, I was always sort of like forcing the kids in the neighborhood to, to play parts in various shows that we would put on for our parents and things like that, and I was Hopefully always... Hopefully not quite as much nudity as your current work. No, it was completely nude. It right. was all nude. Um, yeah, it, uh, so I think I've, I've just always been interested in storytelling. I, I very clearly remember the first movie I ever went to see and how magical that was, uh, but I didn't think of it as a career until I, uh, um, I guess my second year of college, and then I thought, oh, I'm going to be an actor, and uh, I started to, you know, I, I started taking acting classes and didn't get cast in any of the productions at the university. Uh, so friends of mine and I who were in the same boat who didn't get cast in anything, we started writing things for ourselves, and we all eventually became writers. And, and was there a moment after that where you realized, uh, you know, not that it was just your dream, but it was actually something that you, you might be doing for the rest of your life? Um, I think probably by the time I left college, I felt like this is what I want to do for a living. I still thought I wanted to be an actor at that point, and I still was writing basically to provide myself roles to, to perform. But gradually, uh, you know, I worked with little theater companies that were, you know, did shows at midnight in a basement somewhere in New York with three people in the audience. Um, gradually, after years of that, I sort of realized I'm probably a better writer than I am an actor. And what was the first, uh, what you would consider a break? What was the first thing you worked on where you went, hang on, I'm like, uh, you know, I'm a professional writer here? Well, what happened, well, when I was 22, I, I did play Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music um, at an outdoor theater in Jekyll Island, Georgia. And, um, and we have some footage of that. Oh, I hope uh, so. <laughs> actually, three of my children were actually older than I was. But they were very, they were very small. Yeah. Um, I guess the, the first big break for me was I had written a play called Five Women Wearing the Same Dress, which is about bridesmaids at this big stupid wedding. And it was done off-off-Broadway in New York. And I got out of the blue, uh, my agent called me and said, you've got a job offer to go write for this American sitcom, Grace Under Fire. I said, what is that? I've never seen that. It, it was a big hit at the time, but I didn't really watch TV. Um, so I guess that was it. That was the big break. So uh, Brett Butler, I, I believe, is mm -hmm. the, was the star of that. A, a, quite a famous stand-up, but also uh, known amongst other comics as being uh, a little demanding. Uh, was is that fair to say? Well, there were some substance abuse issues, and she might be the angriest person I ever met. And that's a really, really delightful combination. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, God bless her. She was under so much pressure, but it was it was a difficult it was a difficult experience. And then, uh, am I right in saying that you also worked on a sitcom with Sybil Shepherd? Yes, if I had worked for Roseanne, I would have hit the trifecta. What did you learn in a process where you were writing for other people that you that made you think I've got to go out on my own and tell my own stories and sort of have my own own, own vision? Well, um, 
I spent three years on Sybil, and it was a great experience because it taught me a lot about economy. It taught me a lot about the politics of Hollywood and the TV business. Um, it taught me a lot about nuts and bolts storytelling. But we would start breaking the story for each episode by trying to determine what we called um, the moment of shit. It would be like, what is the moment of shit in this episode? And that's the moment where Sybil's daughter would go, Mom, I guess, the I guess the reason I was angry with you is because when you were my age, you were so perfect, and I just feel like I can't live up to it, and I'm really sorry, and people would hug each other. <laughs> um, and you do one of those a week, and you do 24 of them a year, it starts to really feel like factory work. And when I was, when I was writing in New York, I wasn't making a living writing. It was just purely a labor of love. And so I had this really intense, passionate connection to my work that I sort of had to sever to survive those years in, in the sitcom world, or at least the sitcoms I was working on. And so uh, I think um, I learned if I ever if I ever have my own show, it's going to be a functional place where people are treated with respect. And also, I, I really, I just need to write something that I care about because I'm doing factory work and I'm becoming a hack. And uh, so the third year I did Sybil, um, I, was, I, I was writing American Beauty. At, when I get home at 2 in the morning, I would just sit there and furiously write this really angry screenplay. <laughs> And, and there was a lot of anger that, like, I, I think was in that script, right? There was, yeah. like, a, a lot of anger at the, at the heart of it. Yes. Um, when you watch – do you watch it back now? I went to see it, uh, I guess, about a year ago because it was the 10th anniversary. I went to see it at a film festival in Virginia, and that's the last time I saw it. And do you recognize the person who wrote it? Like, are the motions all just still there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's clearly – I mean, it's the story of a man who has lost his passion for living who rediscovers it in a completely inappropriate way. Um, but I think what happened for me as a writer is I rediscovered my own passion for my work. Um, and and uh, I, I do recognize that still when I see it. Sometimes when you watch a movie and they've written dialogue for teenagers, it sounds like an adult writing dialogue for teenagers. But I remember the first time I saw that in the cinema, mm -hmm. the, the impression I had was that sounds like the way those girls would actually talk. Uh, were you lingering around high schools listening to people? <laughs> like, where did that, that language come from? I have to say, I went to see a U2 concert right after I moved to Los Angeles, and um, there was a girl in the row in front of me, and she stood up on her chair and she went, Oh my God, Edge, I love you. I want to have 10,000 of your babies. <laughs> I thought, hmm. Uh, <laughs> Are you a person who collects things like that? Do you, if, so, if you hear something that you like, do you write it down, or does it just kind of bubble around in your brain until it, it comes out when you need it? If it's something like that, it sticks in my head. Uh, I, don't, I don't go around with a tape recorder and a little notebook, you know, like that Alan Alda, Alda character in the Woody Allen movies. It's an idea for a film. Um, <laughs> but I certainly, you know, I, I'm a writer, and I'm, I'm an observer. I see things, and I, I keep them. And when you're writing a script like An American Beauty and you're sitting, you know, uh, alone at 2 o'clock in the morning putting these ideas on the page, do you know, like, where this story is going, what's going to happen, or is the story telling itself? Do you start with something and then it kind of starts to tell itself? 
Well, when we do when we do episodes of television, of course we have outlines because you have to, you know you're sending a writer off, and it's 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 one episode that fits within twelve, so you have to have an outline. But when I do my own work, I don't because if I do an outline, I'm done. The story's told, and so for me, um, the process of writing a script is a little bit of a journey of discovery. And and in, in, in that sense, I guess the script kind of writes itself. Now that does doesn't always work. I have tons of scripts or 15 pages or 20 pages of something that just went into a dead end. But uh, I didn't have an outline for this, no. And, and that process, I'm, I'm always fascinated by, are, are, you, are you in quiet? Are you listening to music? How, how is that writing actually done? Well, when I'm writing alone, I listen to music a lot. Um, I sometimes will put together a playlist that specifically to me sort of conveys the tone and, and the feeling of what I'm writing for. I say the dialogue out loud. Uh, so probably when I was writing that, I was like, oh my God, you told a slut. <laughs> uh, <laughs> totally. I think a, a, to, to an outsider, it would be like, who's that crazy person in that room? And I think, you know, there is a little bit of craziness involved in being a writer, so. I was writing the script and I got to the line where Ricky says, you want to see the most beautiful thing I've ever filmed? And then I thought, well, what is that going to be? And I remembered this moment um, that I, I experienced myself when I was living in New York City um, in the early 90s. And I was walking home from brunch and I was walking across the plaza at the World Trade Center and it was empty and a plastic bag just circled circled me and I thought that's weird and it did it again and it did it again and it literally went in a circle around me 15 times and um, <clears throat> I felt like I was in the presence of something something profound now maybe I had just had one too many Bloody Marys at brunch <laughs> that's entirely possible <laughs> but I did feel like I was in the presence of something mysterious and beautiful and profound and unexplainable. And, uh, and then I just walked home, but I always remembered that moment. And so when I got to that moment when I was writing the script, I just thought, well, it's that plastic bag. It's, it's that moment. And it's become one of the most uh, sort of, you know, it's an iconic movie moment. Mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it's been parodied. It's been mm -hmm. referenced. Mm -hmm. Like, it, when was the first time that you realized that this was a moment that had connected with people? Did you see the movie in a cinema with people? Like, how did, when did you know that this was something that was connecting? Well, I, you know, when we, were, when we were producing this movie, it was at the same time DreamWorks was doing Gladiator. So everybody was focused on Gladiator, and we were just that little movie that Steven Spielberg liked, and, and nobody expected it to be anything except like a little art house movie. But I knew watching it being filmed, I knew that the actors were doing really amazing work and it was really coming together in a way that felt very special to me. And then all the various cuts I saw of it, I thought, this is a really good movie. I really, I really like this movie. I'm really proud of it. Um, but I guess it was probably the second or third week of its release when the reviews came out and, and, and it was doing incredible business. And uh, I thought, wow, I guess it really speaks to people more people than I thought it ever would. Um, and I went to see it a couple of times in full theaters. Uh, I remember once I went to see it and there was a woman sitting next to me. You know that, those people in movie theaters who talk to the movie while they watch? <laughs> and I was sitting right next to this woman in the back row thinking, I'm just gonna blend in. And this woman was sitting next to me and the scene came where 
And that Bennings character starts slapping herself. And this woman just went, no, no. Oh my God, that bitch is crazy. So it was probably that moment when I went, yeah, I know that this is, this has worked out. And uh, let's talk about the Academy Award. That, I mean, that must be, you've, you've written this thing, at, you know, at mm-hmm. two o'clock in the morning, you know, you've acted out the little characters, mm-hmm. you know, and then suddenly it's, it's Oscar night, you know? Yeah. It's very surreal. Um, I was out of my body for probably that entire week. Um, I had a flask of scotch in my tuxedo. It was the only way I could make it through the night. And I don't really remember that much of it because you just feel it's not real. It can't be real. It's so overwhelming. And then they call your name and you sort of stumble to the stage and you get up there and you look out and immediately there's this big TV monitor in the back of the room that starts going 20, 19, 18. Uh, I had practiced my speech because everybody was telling me I was going to win, and I thought, oh, my God, what if I actually do and I have to get up and I talk? That was before I had discovered a a thing called beta blocker, which is a lovely little pill, which I'm on right now. Um, And I knew that because I walked in, and he was like, this couch is lovely. Yeah. (laughs) You know, these chairs are lovely, too. Um... It was surreal. It was a surreal moment, and I think probably what I felt most that night was relief that the entire thing, because it takes, for three months, the entire town goes insane, and the, the publicity people from the studio are sending you here, and go talk to this radio person, and go to this film festival, and do this, and be on this panel, and it was all so incredibly new to me. Um, I think when it actually happened, I just felt this sense of relief of like, okay, now it's over. And uh, so what happens then? Like, now you're an Academy Award-winning writer. Does the world change? Is it it easier for you to, you know, be getting the projects that you want to... Yeah, we all imagine that once that happens that you can walk in the door and get anything you want done. Does that actually happen? Well, you have a kind of validation that that people assume you know what you're doing, even though you're doing the same thing you've you've always done. But people assume, oh, well, he obviously knows what he's doing. Um, I had a very interesting experience because I had created this television show for, um, for one of the broadcast networks in America called Oh Grow Up. It was a situation comedy about three wacky guys who shared a brownstone in Brooklyn and a dog named Mom that would bark and there would be subtitles about what it was thinking, um, which was universally loathed and reviled. Um, there was actually a, a, an issue of People magazine. It was the best and worst of 1999. And you would open a page and would say, the best movies, American Beauty. And you would turn the page and would say, the worst TV shows, oh, grow up. Uh, one of the critics actually said, this is the first show that is actually physically painful to watch. Um, so it was a great lesson. It was a great ba- lesson in balance. Um, and uh, Did you just want to walk into his office with your Oscar? No, I, I, it got cancelled before I won the Oscar. <laughs> um, and, and luckily, you know, I'm glad it did because it, 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 Six Feet Under never would have happened if it hadn't been cancelled. I, I might still be doing a, a talking dog sitcom if it had been a success. Uh, well, uh, we'll get to uh, the TV stuff, obviously, in a moment. But while we're in the movie world, let's just talk about a, another movie, Tailhead, mm-hmm. which... Uh, it probably didn't get uh, as big an audience as some of your other work, but it's one of the most 
uh, to me, one of the most amazing things you've done. An amazing film and equally sort of confronting and, like, funny in different measures. Like, Mm -hmm. it it has a a whole gamut of sort of emotions throughout it. What drew you to this particular project? My agent called me and he said, I have a manuscript for a book that has yet to be published. I think you should take a read. Uh, It was the novel Towelhead by Alicia Arian. And I read it in one sitting. Uh, It was such a harrowing, hilarious, heartbreaking story of this young girl and, you know, her coming of age and her sort of becoming a sexual being and, and you know, a horrible thing happening with this older man next door, completely inappropriate and wrong. Um, but what I loved about it was it was the first time I had, I had read a story like that that didn't follow the usual paradigm of completely innocent victim who has no uh, sexual feelings whatsoever and completely horrendous predator. Um, Because I think that's a very simplistic way of looking at something that is an extremely common experience. Um, And it was just filled with such wonderful characters and, and, and all of them deeply, deeply human and deeply flawed. And what Alicia did in her book that I tried to, to do in the movie is just not judge them. Not, come, not have the movie itself come down and say, this is the villain, this is the hero. And, and then the second thing I loved about the story was that the girl was not destroyed. She was not destroyed by the experience. She still held on to her sexuality, and she still was, um, she came out of it a more powerful um, individual than she was before, and she got out of a, of a, of a, of a horribly abusive situation with her father. Um, and I optioned it myself, and I wrote the script, and it went out to the studios, and everybody was like, no, we're not going to do that movie. We're not going to touch it. Um, and uh, we were able to find some independent financing and to package it. And uh, I just thought it was a really wonderful story, and I loved what it had to say about, you know, it was set in the, the first Gulf War right at the same time, and it came out right at, at the time the second Gulf War was happening, and it was just sort of was like nothing's changed. You know, some people named Bush and Cheney are still, you know, waging war on this other side of the world. And, and, and it, it had so much to do with, uh, with uh, you know, the projection onto the other and a misunderstanding of a culture and everybody assuming that because they're Middle Eastern they have to be Muslim and they have to be terrorists. At the same time, there was this incredibly human story that was told. And uh, I just loved it. And I, and I, I tried to make a movie that, would, that told that story. And uh, I'm very proud of it. Uh, people hated it. Uh, it made a lot of people very angry. There were some people on the internet um, calling for me to, uh, to f- people to bash me over the head with the film canister. Um, I don't really check the internet that often these days <laughs> <laughs> after that experience. Uh, and I'm really glad I made it, even though uh, you know a lot of people have not seen it. But I think uh, the actors do such an amazing job, and it's it's. Uh, I feel like it's really true to the book, and it's a wonderful book. That it's, it's a stunning film, and if, if people haven't seen it, you should take the opportunity to check it out. Uh, one of the things I just wanted to talk about before we move on is that the performances in it are amazing, mm-hmm. but there are certainly some scenes where you've got a young you know, girl like, you know, in a sexual situation with like, an older man. Mm-hmm. It must have been incredibly complex to even know how to film a scene like that. Well, I always felt like the less you see, the creepier it is. And, and you don't want it to turn into pornography. And it's, it's, it's more about what's going on for the characters emotionally 
than what's going on with their bodies. So the moment where he actually crosses the line, the camera just really just keeps pushing in on their faces, and they're both so good. Um, Summer Bischel, who played Jasira, was 18 at the time. The insurance company would not allow me to cast anybody younger than 18. Both her and the, and the kid who played Thomas were both 18. And uh, I, just have to, I just have to say hats off to the actors because they were so willing to go there. And Summer's very, very centered and very, she knew exactly what, what was going on. And there was no sense of any, you know, we, it, it was never a question of her doing anything that she was not comfortable with because I, I don't believe in forcing actors to do things that are beyond their comfort level because I, I just don't believe in that. I think it's really disrespectful. All right, well, let's talk about the TV now. Uh, I want to talk about also Six Feet Under, obviously, as a mm -hmm. starting point. Um, it, tell us about how that came about in the first place. Well, I was doing the talking dog show. Yep. <laughs> and Carolyn Strauss from HBO, uh, American Beauty had been released, and she requested a meeting, and I went to lunch with her, and she said, I have this idea. I want to do this show about a family that runs a funeral home, and I think you would be the perfect writer for that. And when she said that, something in my head clicked. And I thought, wow, that's, I can totally see that show. I know exactly what it would be. But I was doing the talking dog show. So I said, I wish you the best of luck with that. I wish I could, could work on it with you, but I'm doing this talking dog show. <laughs> and uh, soon after, um, the network very graciously canceled the talking dog show. And uh, I, w I still had a year left on my TV deal, and people were calling me saying, uh, we, want to, we want to do a show about a woman whose husband is reincarnated as a dog, and you're the perfect guy to write it. Uh, and I just thought, oh, my God, I can't go back into that sitcom gulag. So I sat down and I wrote the pilot to Six Feet Under over Christmas break, and I came back and I gave it to my agent. I said, this is that show that HBO wants. Just can you give it to them? And, and they read it and they said, we really like it. Uh, however, the whole thing feels just a little safe. Could you maybe just make the whole thing just a little more fucked up? <laughs> and uh, that, was, that was their actual language, and I was sitting there going, thank you. Um, and I said, yeah, I can do that. And, uh, and I went back and did another pass on it, and they said, let's shoot it. You know, who do you want to direct it? And I said, me. Thinking that, thinking that they would go, <laughs> right, seriously, who do you want to direct it? Um, and they said, okay, and they let me direct it. Only later did I find out that they were like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? He's going to screw it up. Um, but uh, they, I, gave them the, I gave them the pilot on a Friday, and on Monday they called me, and they said, let's go to series. And uh, the connection between uh, death and humor, that's mm -hmm. a really interesting one for me because I think that show, more than any other show that I've ever seen, really seem to get the, the immense connection between those two things. Mm -hmm. Where does that connection come from for you? Well, I went through a period of my life when I was like between 13 and 15 where people uh, that I knew, people I was close to, people in my family were, were dropping dead like once every four months or something. I was in a car accident with my sister on her 22nd birthday. I was 13 and she died in front of my eyes. And I think when something like that happens, especially at such a formative time in your life, it's just sort of like you can't ignore the fact that death exists after that. And one of the ways to deal with it became humor. 
Um, I was very keenly aware of the absurdity of certain things. I remember that whole process of being in the funeral home. I lifted things from my experience entirely where my mom went up and my sister was in the casket, the whole open casket thing, which is barbaric and weird in its own way. And she started crying and funeral directors swooped out of nowhere and took her behind this curtain. The message clearly being, oh, that emotion is really unattractive. We don't want to see that. It's too much. Let's just bury it all. And let's just all be sad, but nobody actually falls apart or has any sort of primal grief. Um, so I remember thinking, that's totally weird. Uh, and then, and, you know, I developed a sort of sense of humor about finding humor in the most unlikely places just as a defense mechanism. So I think that's where it came from. And that's why I, I think that's why when Carolyn said a show about a family running a funeral home, I just went, I get that. I know what that show is. And it's darkly funny, you know, because how else do you confront mortality? You have to laugh. And does it make you uh, think about your own death? Like, is that is it top of mind then? Are you one of those people who knows exactly what, what's going to happen, you know, when it's all over? You know, are you going to get shot out of a cannon, Hunter S. Thompson style, or, you know, dragged around Weekend at Bernie style? I'm not sure which, but uh, do you have a plan? Um, I would like to be cremated and have my ashes stuffed into a dog that will talk. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't think about it. I mean, I'm, I'm keenly aware of the finite existence of life and the impermanence of things, but I don't really, I don't focus on it. And there's, and I've, I've reached a point, maybe this is just illusion uh, uh, or denial on my part, but where I've reached a point where I feel like that's kind of liberating because if you know that everything is finite, then every moment kind of counts. And, and, and I find it harder and harder to just go through the motions and, 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 and do things that don't, don't really matter to me. I'm very lucky that I'm in a position where I can do that, and I'm, I'm, I'm very aware of that. Um, no, I don't think about when I die. I feel like I'll be dead. Who cares what they do with me? Uh, it, it was one of the first shows I ever saw on TV where I couldn't quite work out who I was meant to barrack for. Mm -hmm. All of the characters, you know, were both, you know, lovable and flawed, mm -hmm. you know, from episode to episode. And sometimes, you know, a character that would annoy you for weeks would suddenly be, you know, the, the person that you were in the corner of and, and vice versa. Was that something that was an intentional choice? I don't know that it was intentional. I think that seems to be what I'm, I'm drawn to. I, I never, again, I, I'm not interested in heroes and villains and... It seems to me like most of the work I've done has has been they've been more ensemble pieces than one particular person being the star, and I like it that way because I like a lot of stories, um, and I also feel like it's good because the more characters you have who who have really meaningful stories within the work, the more characters there are for people in the audience to identify with. Um, so that you know this person who may not care for Nate and Brenda actually love Keith and David or this person who really thinks Ruth is insane is really invested in Claire. Um, so I think it was just an instinctive choice. It wasn't conscious, but I, I, I kind of like it that way. We're sitting in the writer's room. We knew it was the final season. We were talking about how is the show going to end? How is it going to end? And somebody said, we should just kill everybody. 
we laughed, and then somebody said, no, seriously, we should go ahead in time and be with each character at the moment when they die. And I sort of went, of course, how else could this show possibly end? And I, I need to get in touch with those writers and find out which one thought of it. Of course, they'll all say it was them. <laughs> <laughs> but I know it wasn't me. And uh, who was the most fun uh, death to imagine? When you've lived with those characters for so long, I don't think Brenda's death was fun, but I just like the fact that Billy still wouldn't shut fucking up. I know. I love the fact that, he's, that he sort of bored her to yeah. death. And even though, um, even the day we shot that, even though it's all, you, you don't hear what they're saying, he was literally going, I don't know, I think I could still get Claire back, maybe if, uh, if I just called her. And she just sort of was like... I would rather die than listen to more of this because I've been listening to it for 50 years. Um, yeah, I like that one. It's, like it's, that one. Um, it, it's an amazing piece of work. I, I look, I, I really want to leave plenty of time for the audience to ask questions as well. So um, uh, we'll get to True Blood and then uh, obviously people can come back and revisit anything that we've talked about tonight and we can talk more fully about that. After Six Feet Under, obviously everyone's sitting around going, what, what are you going to do next? And to come out with something like True Blood uh, was a little bit of a, a left turn, I suppose. Not a mm. you know, huge step away, but definitely a little bit of a left turn. I, I, I heard or read that you discovered the books when you were early to the dentist. Is that mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I've lived in L.A. for almost 15 years or maybe longer than 15 years, and I still can't gauge how long it will take me to get from point A to point B. Uh, so I was half an hour early for a dentist appointment, um, actually an endodontist, a root canal guy. And I was in Barnes & Noble, and I was just wandering up and down the aisles, and I saw this little book. I don't know what made me pick it up. Uh, and I picked it up, and it was called Dead Until Dark, and it was the first in Charlene's series. And the tagline was, maybe having a vampire for a boyfriend isn't such a good idea. <laughs> um, and that made me laugh. I took it home, and I read it, and I just fell in love with the world and, and this sort of big jumble of... Um, horror and romance and and comedy and social commentary and terror and uh, very sexy. Like I said, it's lady porn. And uh, and when I got to the end, I was like, no, I want there to be more. And at that time, there were three other books in the series, and I just went through them like popcorn. I would go to bed. Uh, I was still working on Six Feet Under at the time. I would go to bed, and I, w I would think, I got to get up at 6 a.m. to be on set. I'm just going to read one chapter, and I would get to the end of the chapter and be like, and Gran was dead on the floor. I'd be like, what? And so I would end up reading six or seven chapters, and I, you know, we try, to, we try to recapture that as well in the show. And somewhere around book four, I thought, I would watch this TV show. I, it, it, this would be unlike anything I've ever seen. It's really funny. I'm not a vampire guy, but there's something great about the way the, you know, the vampires are struggling for assimilation. That's hilarious. And, and the love story is totally believable. And it's funny. And there's so many great characters. And so I, I started pursuing the rights. It took a while. Because at the time, uh, the rights belonged to some movie producer. But uh, after, I guess, a year and a half, that lapsed. And I had a conversation with Charlene. And, she's, and I said, this is what I love about your books. This is what I would try to do with it. I think it's a TV show. I think it's too big for a movie. And, and she, she liked what she heard. And, and you speak about that, about it being too big for a movie. Is there things that you can do on a week-to-week -week television show, like when you're making an episodic, episodic thing, that you just can't do when, you, when you're making a movie? 
Yeah, I, I would. If you had to like compare movies and TV to uh, literature, I would say movies are short stories, and um, television shows are novels. Uh, I mean, if you look at True Blood, we've told that story for 48 hours, and there are so many characters, but all of those characters have been able to grow and change and sort of. You know, Anna and I joke about the fact that in, in, in season one, Sookie went from a, an innocent virgin to a murdering whore. <laughs> um, which is a joke, but you can actually, see, you can actually have characters adapt and, and, and change in ways that would have to be so condensed and so simplified for movies. There's, there's something about the size of the canvas in a TV show, especially a cable TV show where you don't get interrupted by advertisements, um, where it really... And I think... I think that's changing the way a lot of people watch TV. You know, you get the box set, and you close yourself in for the weekend, and you watch the whole thing. And there's something really satisfying about that. And is that how you watch things? Are you a... Uh... It's how I watch some things. It's how I watch the first two seasons of Lost. It's, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's several shows that I've watched that way. But then there are also, I have my appointment TV. Breaking Bad, I love. Um... I missed Sunday's episode because we were flying here and I'm, I'm dying to know what happened. I'm sure you can illegally download it off the internet like most of the people in this room do with your show. Uh, <laughs> uh, are you inspired by other... <laughs> yeah, big laugh that they're stealing from you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a, a lot of people, uh, are you inspired by other, other TV makers? Other, you know, do you w like to watch other people inspired by their work? Yeah, absolutely. There are shows I really love. I love Breaking Bad. I love Mad Men. I like Dexter. I really fell in love with Game of Thrones. Um, I'm a huge South Park fan. I still, it makes me laugh, unlike any other show on TV. Uh, there's, a, there's a crazy little uh, comedy on Comedy Central in America called Workaholics which, uh, being a workaholic myself, I feel like I should support. Um, and I actually have been into an Australian TV show recently, a show called Rake, which I just discovered channels, channel surfing, and I, I heard the accent. I was like, oh, I'm going to Australia. I should probably watch this. And um, I, I, it really spoke to me because all of those characters are so screwed up and yet so human, and it's just, I, 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 I really like that. Yeah, it's on the ABC, which in this country is definitely the best network. Um, <laughs> uh, look, I, I feel like I've taken up too much time, and I know there's plenty of people in the audience who would love to ask a question. So we've got four microphones that are spread around uh, the room. They obviously each have a, a number next to them. If you would like to ask a question, what I'll get you to do is go towards one of the microphones, and we'll just go around to each of them, uh, you know, in, in, in a row. And uh, if you just say your name and say your question, then uh, you have an opportunity to ask Alan a question if you would like to. So I'll give you a moment now if you would like to do that. Oh, can you scream? Hang on. I'll come over here and help. You're very loud? <laughs> it's like being heckled by one of the old guys from the Muppets. <laughs> uh, this is obviously coming out as a novel, these questions. Yes. So I... Did you get those? I think that the first question is, if we're not getting nominated for awards, is HBO still behind the show? Um, yes, because the show is, it's their highest rated show, and because um, unlike all the thieves here tonight, <laughs> unlike all of you thieves, people are actually buying the DVDs. 
and there. I don't know why I keep going into this. Um, and and so the show is is uh, is very um, lucrative for HBO. And and as much as they like the awards, I think they like money better. Um, then your second question was having a married couple, Anna and Stephen. It you know when I first found out that Anna and Steven were hooking up, which was as it was happening. They, they think that they were very sneaky and nobody knew about it, but I actually got a call from the producer in Shreveport and said, they're hooking up right now. <laughs> <laughs> and that was in episode two of season one. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, what are we... Uh, but it has never had any negative impact on the show whatsoever. They are... Um, they're both consummate professionals. And I think in, in many ways it really helped because I think we saw them fall in love at the same time Bill and Sookie fell in love. It is a little difficult now that they're not together and they both have to, uh, you know, um, get frisky with other people that they're not married to. Um, but like I said, they're both pros. And uh, it's not difficult for me or the production. I just think it's a little hard for them. But they have a great sense of humor about it. It's never been... It's never been remotely negative in any way. And uh, the good news for them, as opposed to most celebrities, is their sex tapes are really well shot. Absolutely. <laughs> so. They're really well shot. They're beautifully lit. Mm. We go in and we do some, you know, post work to make sure that everything looks really good. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, we have some people who've, who've gone to the uh, microphones. Over there, if you just say your name and ask your question number one. Hi, I'm James. Um... Uh, corporate control of the media is really everywhere in your work. You know, we see things like... Well, it's really hard, for instance, in True Blood for characters to mm, learn the truth outside of the spin. Do you think there's a way that we can ever access the real truth of things? Um, I don't know what it's like here, but I, in America, I feel like most of the media is just this big parade of corporate propaganda and lies. Um, I think you have to dig. I think you have to dig under the surface to find the truth. I don't... I don't watch, I don't get my news from the TV or actually newspapers. I, there, there are some websites I go to and I try, to, I, I actually try to read news from sources outside of America. Um, I think it's possible, but I think you have to work at it, is, is my instinct. And, and the, politics is a theme that runs through a lot of your work, whether it's overt or sometimes, you know, just bubbles along below the surface. Is that something that has always been important to you to, to, to involve that world? I don't know why, but for at, some, at a very early age, I just got a sense that everything I was seeing and everything that we were being told in the whole American political um, parade was just a big emperor's new clothes mess of nothingness. Um, uh, particularly the Reagan administration really sort of made me go like, wait a minute, what the, you know, this is what's going on. Um, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're still answering her question. So, uh, we'll get to number two over here. Hi, um, Avnish. Um, I'm a big fan of all your work, firstly, and I just thought I'd ask a question about Six Feet Under, my personal favourite. Um, it's a show full of lots of grief, um, obviously humour inside as well, as you said. And like you mentioned before, um, you've been through a lot of grief in your past. And I was wondering if making that show actually brought that back, that grief, or was it actually easier to deal with while on the set? 
and writing it? You know what that show did in a way for me? First of all, it was film school because I had never been to film school and, and, and I really learned a lot about um, production and everything. Second of all, I think it was a way for me to understand the process of grief a little bit more. I didn't necessarily re-grieve everything I had grieved before because I feel like once you grieve something, you go through it. It never fully leaves you the loss that you feel, but uh, I'm only speaking for myself, of course, but I, I, I do think you, there is a point where you come out on the other side. Um, I do think that when the point in the show where Nate dies and everything after that, I think everybody who worked on the show was able to grieve the end of the show because it had been such a positive experience for all of us, and I think a lot of that you see on the screen. I know when I wrote that final episode, I when I was writing that thing we just saw, I was weeping as I wrote, and my I had two dogs with me, and they were looking up at me like, "What?" what yeah, you I watched your last episode last night with the commentary on as well, and you mm. mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> um, sadly, one of those dogs is no longer with us. No. Um, so I, I I do feel like I was able to sort of understand the process of grief, and I'm much less fearful of grief now than I was before working on that show. Thank you. Uh, I think we can go up the back to, to number three. Uh, hi there. Um, I'm Abby, and I'm very curious about the uh, courtroom sequence that initially started American Beauty. Like, you know, what were your um, uh, intentions in writing it initially and then removing it? Uh, what Abby's talking about, the, the original script of American Beauty started with a courtroom sequence, sequence with Ricky and Jane being on trial for Lester's murder and actually going to jail. And it was very, um, all of that came, all of that was a sort of uh, rebellion against the moment of shit uh, that I was so used to on Sybil. Um, I was sort of like, yeah, moment of shit? You know what? No! He's dead, and the, and, and the kids get, get uh, accused of it, and the colonel goes free, and everything sucks, and life is horrible. Um, and it was kind of liberating to write that after all those, you know, probably 60, 70 moment of shits that I had been a part of. Uh, but, and we shot all of that, but in the process of editing the movie, um, Sam Mendez took it out. And I was upset for about a day when I found out. But then I saw the cut of the movie, and he said, look, this, the movie is telling us what it wants to be, and it's, it's, it's not as dark as, that, as your script was. It's not as cynical. And I think he was right. And, and uh, so uh, it just, you know, you write a script and you shoot it. It's not really until editing where the, where the movie or the TV show becomes what it wants to be. And I do believe that anything of that, any, any sort of huge collaborative venture like that does sort of take on its own life. If you're lucky, you want it to, and you want it to sort of let you know what it wants to be and get, and, and, and part of my job at that point is to get out of the way. Uh, we can go up to number four. Alan, I think for so many writers in the room, HBO is seen as this big warm bath where you get to just bob around being creative and, oh, please, can you, you know, be a bit more fucked up? Um, <laughs> are HBO always that amazing to work with on a day-to-day -day basis creatively? And if so, why do you think there isn't more of that kind of material that's pushing creative boundaries and budget limits, given that they're so successful time and time again? Well, uh... 
I love working at HBO. They've been really, really good to me and good to the show. And uh, I do feel like they want they want to provide a home for people who have distinctive voices. Um, however, like any producing entity in Hollywood or anywhere, there's a limited uh, amount of money that they have. There's a limited amount of, of time that they have. They don't have the resources yet to do like seven nights of programming. Uh, but I think HBO changed the face of television. And I don't know what it's like here, but I know in America there's now there's Showtime and AMC and TNT and uh, Cinemax is starting to do original programming. And I feel like um, with The Sopranos and uh, hopefully Six Feet Under was a part of that and Sex in the City, they sort of changed, they, they, they sort of made television more than it had ever been before. And I do feel like right now we're living in a, in a, in a kind of golden age of, of television. And I'm very, very grateful to be a part of that and for our show to be a part of that. It seems to me in a lot of ways like TV is much more welcoming to complicated, um, nuanced, morally ambiguous storytelling for adults than movies are. And, uh, and I think HBO really sort of spearheaded that. Um, it seems on True Blood that, that, that every season it, you just ramp shit up. Like, it gets even more crazy. Is it one of those shows where you just have complete freedom to, to go to that next level, or do you ever fear that you're going to, you know, jump the vampire shark, so to speak? You know what we try to do is we try to really keep everything grounded in, in the characters and their emotional lives. Um, I, I, we try not to do weird stuff just for the sake of weirdness. Um, we really try to to make sure that it's, it's grounded in the characters and, and their desires and their fears and whatever. Um, the show has just sort of organically gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, it's not like I feel like, oh, we have to outdo ourselves. We have to outdo ourselves. I just think that's where the story has sort of gone and where it's taken. And when you have so many characters in this world and you've done all this stuff before, you don't want to repeat it. So... Um, but I, I would say, if there was a sign, if we were a political campaign and we had a sign on the wall in the war room, I don't think it would be like, ramp the shit up. It would be, it's the emotions, stupid. And, uh, and we just try to remain true to that. Brilliant. Uh, we can go back uh, around to number one. Hello, Alan. Um, my name is Palani. Um, just a short story and then the question. Um, I went back um, to Malaysia some time ago, a few years ago, um, to back to my friend's place, and there were a group of gay men sitting together um, with uh, some fruit flies. We don't call them fag hags. Um, okay. <clears throat> and uh, ready to watch... Ready to watch... Um, fruit fly is so much more respectful than fag hags. <laughs> I agree. Um, ready to watch a box set of the first season of True Blood. And I haven't seen it, heard it. Don't ask me where I've been. Um, when I entered there, and people were so excited about True Blood and sitting down there and watching it. And because um, they felt that this was a show about homosexuality, was a show that was uh, empowering them. It was every, the images that was coming out, like God hate fangs and, you know, Suki saying coming out of the coffin and lots of different metaphors uh, used um, to talk about uh, morality, to talk about sexuality. And, I, and then I realized it was written by you. And then I 
knew that you, you, know, you had done um, Six Feet Under. And I thought about Six Feet Under, and that's exactly how I felt um, being in Malaysia at that time. And we would all get together and talk about such incredible um, way uh, drug use was portrayed and homosexuality was portrayed uh, so sane and without any judgment. So my question is, do you see yourself as an activist? Because I know you say that you want to ram shit up and you want to fuck things up a bit more, but do you actually <laughs> sit down and think, is my work going to change something? No, because I feel like... <laughs> Seriously, I feel like the minute I start to go like, I'm going to teach the world a lesson, then it's like, oh, shut up. Who cares? What do you know? You know, uh, I, I just, I mean, I'm gay myself, and so obviously that's going to find its way into the work I do. Um, a lot of people ask um, if the vampires in True Blood are meant to be metaphors for gays and lesbians, and the answer is no. Um, I do believe that there's certainly a way to see any sort of feared and loathed uh, minority struggling for um, assimilation, especially the God hates fangs and coming out of the cough and everything. It's, it's, it, it, is, it is possible to look at it that way. I think that's only because that's what's going on now. If True Blood were appearing, you know, 50 years ago, it would all be about civil rights for Africans, uh, African Americans and people of color. If it were 100 years ago, it would all be about women and women struggling for uh, equality and the right to vote. Um, you know, we actually won an award from the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation for our, our, our show, and uh, I wasn't able to go, but Dennis O'Hare, who played Russell Edgington um, in season three, went to accept the award, and he called me and said, what should I say? And I said, well, why don't you thank them for um, recognizing our very positive portrayal of gays and lesbians as drug-dealing prostitutes and murdering <laughs> monsters. Um, <laughs> I do think, I, I mean, because... I, I do think the, the best thing one can do in terms of characters of any kind of minority or any kind of misunderstood or feared group is to just show them as fucked up as everybody else. And their stories matter just as much as everybody else's. Um, but the minute you start to have them, you know, when I was growing up, I'm 54, so when I was growing up, you didn't see gay characters, or if you did, they were psychopaths. And then AIDS came along, and then if you saw gay characters, they were um, tragic and noble victims. Uh, I remember I, I watched a soap opera when I was in high school, and there was a character who was gay, and then, it, and then um, it, it would, during the summer, all the characters would go to the yacht club, and all the guys would take off their shirts, except for the gay guy. He always left his shirt on, because I, it was like, well, we can't really acknowledge that he's actually a sexual being. He's like a nice guy, but don't think about what he actually does at night in the bedroom. Um, so I guess at that point, I said, well, if I ever have a show, everybody's going to have their shirt off all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much for that. <laughs> yeah.
I, I never thought I was always a person who argued against being gay being a choice until I saw Alexander Skarsgård without his shirt, and I went, I choose. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, number two. Oh, number two's over here. Sorry, yeah. Hi, my name's Lucy. Uh, Mr. Ball, firstly, I'd like to say thank you so much for embracing um, some amazing Australian talent in both True Blood and Six Feet Under. Uh, we have a lot in this country, and it's just amazing that you can um, help support that because they have been absolutely brilliant. Secondly, uh, I'm an English teacher, and I teach uh, at an all-boys school, and they clearly don't see... They love True Blood, um, the senior kids. I keep, obviously, there's an age restriction, so I keep the junior kids away from it at the moment. But um, in the boarding houses, I, I've kind of chatted with some of the kids when I've been supervising, they've been watching it, and I said to them that I was coming to this and asked if there's anything that they'd like me to ask you. And clearly, um, unlike the, first, the question before me, they didn't see anything metaphorical at all. They just said to say, thanks for all the boobs. Um, <laughs> and secondly, from a teacher's perspective, it's really difficult to get boys into that creative mentality. And obviously, a lot of the stuff, um, as you said before, you've taken a lot of inspiration from real life, which is something that is a little bit of a struggle um, for um, younger kids. And you said that you didn't quite realise that you had that... Um, instinct to go with um, directing and whatnot until you were in second year of college. But is there anything that you could, that I could take back to those kids to say, think about this or a piece of advice that you would give them in finding their, their inner creativity? I would say, um, you know, it, it, there's a Buddhist concept of following your bliss, do what makes you happy. Um, I think young people, especially uh, these days, when I was a kid, I, I literally, you just thought about, what do I want to do? Whereas it's so competitive and there's so much pressure on them now. Um, I would just say, really think about what makes you happy and, and, uh, and you don't have to figure out what you want to be until you become that. You don't have to have all the answers at age 18 or age 20. Uh, and uh, I guess that would be my advice. Do what, do what, do what, um, really fulfills you. Excellent. Thank um, you very much. And that's yeah. very good to have a teacher actually working today, so I appreciate that. <laughs> um, we have to uh, finish up uh, reasonably soon, so I really want to try to get in as many questions in the last five minutes as I can. Uh, we can go up to number four if there's someone up there. Great. G'day, Alan. My name's Paul. Um, what I wanted to talk about is the soundtrack to your work. Obviously, very perfect, the way you synchronize audio and visual. Um, more specifically with the American Beauty thing, what kind of input did you have to that? How do you express what you hear in your mind to a composer like Thomas Newman? Well, with American Beauty, I had zero input. Um, uh, Sam, you know, chose Thomas to, um, to score the movie, and then when he put together his cut, it was scored with a lot of Thomas's scores from other movies, mostly Shawshank Redemption and um, Meet Joe Black. And uh, it all worked really beautiful, but then Sam worked with Thomas on that. I, I was very, I basically was on the set every day observing and being there to answer questions about the script, but I didn't really have much creative input into American Beauty other than writing the script. Um, however, after that, uh, when I work with composers, uh, I, I just basically, you know, I feel like if a scene works without music, that's great. 
if, if, if the music really adds to the scene, that's great. And sometimes the scenes don't really work and the score sort of saves it. Um, but w did I answer the question? Even yeah, remotely? Definitely. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much. Right, Team uh, sorry, if we can go on to number one. We'll try to get a couple of quick ones in before we finish. Okay. Hi, um, I'm Jo. Um, I... You know, I was, I'm not really into vampires either, actually, and my friend pressed the box set into my hands at Christmas time and said, I've got to watch this. So I did, and since December I've seen all three seasons, I've read all the books, and I got to the end of the, the last book in the Charlene Harris series, and I thought, fuck, the bugger is going to, like, string this out, like the love triangle and Bold and the Beautiful, because she's just going to keep writing those novels. And I wonder, like... Like, do you have a sense of how, how much longer HBO is going to continue with the series? Because there's like nine or 12 books. I think there's 10 right now, and she's going to write three more. I've not read that, that last book, so I don't really know what happens in it. I, I read number nine. Um, I don't really know where it's going to go story-wise. Uh, again, I think that's... The show will hopefully that will just reveal itself to us. I don't know if the show can run for 13 years because I think we'd have to deal with vampires aging. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe there's a batch of bad True Blood or. Um, but I do know that as long as the show continues to make money, HBO will support it and will want it to go on. But I, you know, I, I also feel like shows have a, a shelf life. They have they have a. a they're just like everything else, they end. And when that time comes, I hope that we recognize it and we don't just try to draw it out way after it's, it's, it, it has life in it. But that being said, I, don't, I, don't, I think it still has a lot of life in it. Right. There's, there's still an entire season when Tom Hanks is a male stripper. That's uh, going to spin off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, number two. Um, hi, Alan. I'm Andrew. I'm interested in the choices to deviate away from the, um, of the source material, Charlene's source material, and the choices that have been made for that, and how that's complicated the um, coming up with each season, where you've now got a whole bunch of characters that died in original books that are still alive, the ca characters that um, like southern singers that don't appear in the series but are in the book, mm -hmm. um, like Bubba, and um, just the choices that are made to uh, where those have been driven from and um, how that's actually complicated the nature of coming up with each season. Well, I can address the Bubba question right off the bat. If, for those of you who don't know the books, Bubba is Elvis, who was made a vampire and kind of became sort of semi-retarded in the process. <laughs> I just didn't see any way to do that on film. <laughs> I mean, you can do it in a book because you can imagine it really is Elvis. But if you do it on movie, it's just going to be an actor playing Elvis, so it's going to seem really stupid. Um, or you have to not ever see his face like the guy on the other side of the fence in Home Improvement. <laughs> Which seems equally silly to me. Um, in the books, Lafayette dies at the, at the very beginning of the second book, but when we were shooting the pilot, after working with Nelson Ellis for one day, I said, there's no way we can kill this character. He's too great. Uh, 
I think probably the main reason we deviate is the fact that the books are narrated by Sookie. They're Sookie's story, and you have to... If, if we just did that, number one, there would be no surprises for anybody who had read the books. Uh, number two, Anna would be working five days a week, 12 hours a day, and she would be exhausted. And uh, we have such a great cast of characters and, and such amazing actors that I want to give them all stories as well. And since those don't really exist in the books, we have to make them up. And then sometimes we decide to deviate from the books because it just seems like given the fact that we've gone from one person's story to 20 people's story, it makes more sense to do it this way. And again, it's all, it's, there's no formula. It's, it's just an organic... Has uh, that complicated the nature of coming up with each season as you get more and more characters deviating from those storylines? Um, it's a tough. It's a tough nut to crack. It's, I mean, it's 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 a it's a hard show to try to figure out things to keep everybody involved and somehow living in the same town and bringing them all together at 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 at, at one point as much as one can. But I don't think it's. I think it would be way more complicated if we just tried to follow the books verbatim, because I don't know that it would work at, as as a as a visual story. Um, it works as a book because you're inside one person's head and you're experiencing things as her. Uh, and then, like I said, there would be no surprises. Um, we could talk all day, but there's a fine line between an interview and a hostage situation. So <laughs> we should uh, finish it up. We'll go for two more questions. We'll go to three and four. So is there someone at uh, three? Yeah. Hi, my name is Luke. Um, I just wanted to ask, you've talked about good quality te television in your answers to some of the other questions, and I just wanted your opinion briefly on uh, the rise of good quality TV over the past decade, um, even from something as simple as the title sequences, like in Six Feet Under and uh, True Blood, how you had Digital Kitchen create these really cinematic opening titles for TV. Uh, why do you think that is? And also, as we heard from the laughter before, a lot of people in this room probably download True Blood illegally just because they don't want to fall behind the U.S. and we don't get it quite as quickly as them. Um, and what do you think that's going to do to the future of television? Like, there's lots of good quality TV, but do you think it will always be on TV? Uh, okay. Your first question was about the, the rise of quality television. I think it's partially because there's a there are tremendous uh, there's a tremendous body of of really good actors and really good writers and really good directors who want to tell stories that are more interesting than Spider-Man, um, and television has been very welcoming to them in a way that features have not, uh, and more and more people you know that used to be like. Movies were considered very fancy, and television was like the bastard stepchild. It was considered a step down to work in TV. I think that's changed, and I think that's probably good, because I think a lot of the stuff on TV is a lot better than what's on, what's on the movie screens these days. I also think the fact that people's televisions have gotten bigger and better, and people have screening rooms at home now, it's a, it's a, it's a different experience than... 20, 30 years ago when you sat watching a little box because now a lot of people have big screens and surround sound in their homes. So their homes are equipped to have something that's really cinematic and really, you know, with like cinematic sound design and, and that kind of thing. Um, 
regarding illegal downloading, you know, um, I'm of two minds. I think, uh, on the one hand, uh, people work really hard uh, uh, to make something, and, and, and people's livelihoods depend on it. So anytime somebody downloads it for free, it, it takes some money away from the people who work on it. On the other hand, most of that money goes into the pockets of big studios and big corporations that I don't really, you know, it's, I get it. I mean, I, 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 I get both sides of it. I personally choose not to download illegally because that's my own choice. Me neither, but if someone can show me how to do it, I... Uh... <laughs> then I would change my mind on that. Uh, we have time for uh, one uh, final question up the back there. Hello. Uh, my question is, at the center of many of your stories is usually a very strong and cleverly written female character. So um, my question is, do you approach writing for female characters or different gender roles differently, and how do you find your inner Sookie Stackhouse? Well, there's a big girl that lives inside of me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess I've, I, I don't know, I've always, you know, I grew up, uh, I grew up loving Tennessee Williams and William Inge and all those great American melodramatic playwrights of the 50s and 60s, and they always have these great, you know, female characters. Um, it's, it's not something I set out to do, but I, I, I find women characters just as interesting as men. Uh, and then, you know, especially on the things I've worked with at TV, I always have women on staff, and um, I, I just am more interested. You know, a lot of times you go to a movie and the woman is the wife or the girlfriend or the whore. Um, basically, I have a friend who says, you know, Hollywood thinks there are two kinds of women, dykes and cheerleaders. Um, and I, I do feel like the depiction of women in most mainstream American movies is pretty shocking and kind of horrible and offensive. Um, but I guess I'm just more interested in humans, no matter what their sex is. So whether they're male or female, I'm going to be interested in what really moves them and what really, what, what they really want and, and how they mess up in their quest to be a more authentic person in an increasingly inauthentic world. If that makes any sense. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, unfortunately we have gone way over the time we were allowed, but I think you'll all agree it's been an amazing uh, show and I don't really know how to end something like this, so what I've done is I've prepared a montage of how each of you are going to die. <laughs> so if you could just sit here for an hour and a half while we run through that. No, ladies and gentlemen, could you please show your appreciation for Alan Bull? Thank you so much. That was really nice.